0: Tales of Tor Clock Book One A Day Away, Chapter Two Jane had hardly entered the village before she heard the scream, and set off at a dead run towards the farthest hut, weaving through the dark paths lit only by patches of stars flickering through the clouded sky. She had taken note of this particular dwelling on previous nights. It was set somewhat apart from the others and had obviously been constructed recently, in great haste, with little skills and even less material. If it had a current occupant, Jane had never seen them. Jane followed the noise behind the tiny shack and froze. A man had his back to her, bending over a much smaller figure, the source of the whimpering, who was pinned down in the dirt, her skirt pulled up to her chest. She screamed again as the man pressed himself against her not a shout for help, but a horribly hoarse, muffled, defeated sound of pain that broke apart into ragged sobs. Jane recognized the man from her very first day, the important writer. He was no taller than she, but strongly built, muscular and tanned and thickly bearded, and dressed in a heavy leather vest over an orange tunic that fell to his knees, leaving the rest of his legs bare but for low boots. When a snarl leapt from her throat, he glanced up and immediately caught sight of her bare dirk, the long knife glinting in the starlight. Pulling away from his victim to face Jane instead, he snapped angrily at her, the words much too fast and unfamiliar for her to parse out. Jaw-tensing, Jane brandished her dirk again, spinning it into a backhanded fighting grip as she dropped into a defensive crouch. The man yelled at her some more, drawing a dark iron dagger, and this time Jane responded in commanding Old Irish. As she expected, he knew the language, though it only seemed to infuriate him further. His heavily accented retort was understandable even without the threatening step forward, the man wielding his hulking form in a practiced intimidation technique. "'This doesn't concern you, Gail. Your kind aren't welcome here.' "'It concerns me now,' Jane replied, trying to subtly circle between attacker and victim. The man, however, snarled at her. "'Get out of my way, Gallic mongrel!' With a lunge, he slashed at her with his dagger. Jane sidestepped the blow, catching his sleeve and yanking him forward off balance. A sweeping kick pulled his legs out from under him, sending him face-first into the dirt, where a stomp broke his grip on his dagger, which Jane scooped up, flipping it into her left hand to match the dirk in her right.' I SAID LEAVE HER ALONE. The man rolled backwards and leapt to his feet, hands fisted as if ready to take Jane on despite her possession of both weapons, but after a tense moment, he spat at her feet and stormed away. A minute later, the thunder of hooves rattled through the village and faded into the distance. Slipping knife and dagger into sheath and belt respectively, Jane turned to look at her rescuee. She was still huddled where she'd been left, tucked into the shadow against the wall, staring out at Jane with a mixture of terror and awe. Jane held out empty hands, trying a reassurance in Gallic. The woman eyed her without comprehension, but nonetheless swallowed and edged forward into the dim starlight. Jane released the breath she was holding, half in relief, half in shock. Her rescuee was hardly a woman at all, "'but a wisp of a girl, perhaps fifteen years old at most. "'She was tiny, with a hungry, pinched look "'that only accentuated her rumpled, dirty, ragged clothes "'and fresh bruises. "'When she twisted to try to get her feet underneath her, "'her tunic caught on her distended abdomen. "'Jane swallowed hard. "'The girl staggered, trying to rise, "'and when Jane's hands shot out to steady her, "'her shaking legs simply gave out "'and she collapsed into Jane's arms.' Murmuring soft nonsense, Jane gathered up her small form, took an educated guess, and carried her around the corner and into the ramshackle little hut. The shack was bare but for a meager stack of firewood, a small clay pot, and a few thin blankets in a corner. These Jane bundled around the girl before setting about scrounging fire and water. While the water heated, she coaxed the girl into a sitting position and got her to drink some strong tea from one of Jane's flasks. The next hour was dedicated to Jane's ministrations, and she allowed no room in her mind for anything else, welcoming the calm static of a first-response situation that drowned the voices of anxiety. The girl submitted to her care with wide eyes and very little resistance, slowly drooping as the tea and adrenaline crash took effect. Once the girl was clean and her bruises treated, Jane surreptitiously fished a spare tunic from one of her pockets and handed it to the girl who took it uncertainly and then merely held it in her lap, stroking the soft, fine linen in wonder. Jane sighed and gently coaxed the girl out of her garment and switched it for Jane's. Although Jane herself was not a particularly large woman, the fabric hung from the girl's slight frame, tight only across her stomach. Jane estimated that the girl was seven or eight months along. She swallowed, eyes burning, and buried her thoughts under static again. Readjusting the blankets around the girl's shoulders, Jane stepped outside to pull her sheepskin and thick plaid from her pockets as well, along with a leather food wallet containing some dried meat, cheese, a few root vegetables, and a slightly wrinkly apple. Back in the hut, she added her blanket to those draped around the girl and set the rolled sheepskin at her side, handing her the apple and cheese. The vegetables and meat Jane broke into smaller pieces and dropped in the pot of water on the fire. Jane sat down to stir her soup, watching the girl take slow, savoring bites of the proffered food. By the time she finished the apple and cheese, the meat and vegetables had boiled soft, and Jane lifted the pot with a scrap of cloth and presented it to the girl. She stared at it, blankly, until Jane passed her a wooden spoon, at which point, finally, the girl burst into tears, covering her face with her hands, the spoon still poking absently from between her fingers. With a low sigh, her own eyes watering, Jane drew the girl half on to her lap, murmuring to her and stroking her hair, rocking her gently back and forth. Something very small struck Jane inside, and the girl's breath gave a little hitch of discomfort. Jane's lips quirked upwards despite herself. Feisty little guy, she whispered. The girl blinked up at her, eyes still wet, and Jane shook her head dismissively, huffing through her nose never mind. She tightened her arm around the girl's shoulders and resumed her rocking, fingertips tracing random, calming circles and arcs across her scalp and through her hair. Jane caught herself humming an old lullaby. She let her mouth form the words, quiet and soft and lilting, and she let her brain form thoughts. They kept her awake long, long after the girl fell asleep. the girl's name was aya communication had been awkward at first but piece by piece the language was falling into place in jane's mind the process went much faster now that she had someone to talk to aya was good company inquisitive intelligent and witty to boot and and she needed jane which was good for jane too more or less Overnight, Jane's world refocused from her disorienting situation to Aya and their survival—hers and Aya's and—and. They had time, but very little. Here and now, they seemed to have about a month before the cold weather truly set in. Jane imagined it was, perhaps, late September. She knew seasons in Scotland were about a month ahead of what she was used to in the northeastern United States— and she knew that she was somewhere near the beginning of what would one day be called the Little Ice Age, when the winters in this part of the world were particularly harsh and the summers wet. Jane would have to work fast if they were going to make it to another spring. A lack of food and firewood, and despair over the suitability of Aya's shack, drove Jane back to the forest on that very first morning with the girl. "'Ea, though, trailing along behind, had caught Jane's sleeve at the forest's edge, "'stopping her with a frightened glance up at the hill. "'Sheena,' the girl warned, using the Gallic translation Jane had introduced herself with. "'She went on, but Jane only half-understood a few of the words. "'If her guess was correct, something about bad spirits, "'which would explain why the hill was so studiously avoided. "'She responded with an awe of realization.' but shook her head with a slight smile. She gave Aya's wrist a brief squeeze, then dropped it and held out her hand, inviting. Though her smile was steady, her chest tightened nervously. Just how far would this damaged young woman trust a foreign stranger, savior or not? Much as Jane's heart ached to care for the girl, she would never, never force it on her. So if she turned away now... But she didn't. With a tiny shudder and big, gray eyes that never left Jane's face, Aya grasped her hand and followed her into the forest, pressing close at her shoulder. After that day, the hill became their home. The hidden outcropping Jane had found near the stream and amongst the trees proved easy to carve deeper— The broad, rocky protrusion burrowed into the hillside at a slight upward angle, forming a sturdy ceiling for their makeshift cave that rose gradually the farther inward Jane dug until she could stand upright. Though ideal for protection from the weather and from discovery, it was less ideal for smoke control, and the most difficult part of the whole endeavor, Jane found, was seeking out the edges of the slab of rock and prodding a chimney vent through to the surface. Even so, as Jane dug and Aya drug in piles of peat and evergreen boughs and dry leaves, what once was little more than a shallow hollow in the hillside transformed into a snug, well-insulated earthen shelter, with room enough for beds and provisions and a fire, with fresh, running water scant meters from the front door, and a hill pockmarked with overpopulated rabbit warrens left undisturbed by the fearful villagers. Aya eyed Jane suspiciously every time she mysteriously produced some new item they needed, but it wasn't until the third day of their project that the girl caught her red-handed, pulling an axe from a small coat pocket. To her credit, the girl did not scream, but she froze and her eyes went very, very wide, and after a long moment of silence, in a hushed, frightened voice, she asked a question that started with Jane's name and involved several words Jane had heard in Aya's warning about the hill. Jane shook her head, trying not to smile, and slipped her coat off to hold it out for inspection, demonstrating a few of the pockets. "'No,' she explained as best she could. "'I found it. It's not bad magic, and I'm not an evil spirit.' Aya watched her stick her arm in several pockets and withdraw it safely before she dared to reach out and touch the coat herself, despite that by now she'd sat pressed against it several times and been quite comfortable." Emboldened when nothing happened, she tentatively slipped her hand inside a pocket. She snatched it back almost immediately, as if burned, and Jane reached into the same pocket and withdrew the tinderbox and flint set that had so startled the girl. She passed them over, then proffered the coat, inviting Aya to put the items back herself. Gingerly, she did so, then backed away a step or two. For the rest of that day and the next, she kept her distance from the coat, whether or not Jane was wearing it, and watched carefully each time Jane interacted with it. Her nervousness faded gradually, however, and before long, Aya knew the coat almost as well as Jane did, and had memorized Jane's organizational system until she could locate any item with unerring efficiency. Time Passed The leaves turned deeper, brighter colors, and began to fall. Everywhere in the forest, animals were preparing for winter, and every edible berry and root and leaf was a treasured prize at the end of a race that Jane and Aya rarely won. Jane's snares and bow, though, proved far more effective, and Aya spent nearly all of her time preserving the meat and hides that Jane brought home. The caves smelled always now of sweet jerky and wood smoke, and the evergreen boughs crushed under their weight as they slept each night, wrapped in furs and Jane's wool plaid and nestled together for warmth and comfort, and less of the cool earth and stone that sheltered them. Jane had taken to calling it Gubrochlach, the warren, for they felt as safe and cozy inside as a rabbit in its den. Jane continued her morning vigils atop the hill, "'but neither she nor Aya returned to the village once. "'From the hilltop, perhaps a week after that night, "'Jane watched the shepherds slowly guide hundreds of fluffy brown dots "'around bluffs and crags and patches of forest and down in amongst the huts. Two days later, they left en masse, heading south, "'children and dogs frolicking alongside the sheep, "'women with baskets on their heads following behind men "'carrying bundles over their shoulders.' True to Jane's prediction, only a handful of people remained in the village, condensing themselves into the two permanent structures where they could more easily overwinter. Jane wondered, as she watched from her perch on a rock at the peak of her hill, whether any of them had looked up and seen her there yet, and whether they thought her one of the hill's evil spirits. She wondered whether Aya had family in the village, and whether they had stayed, or gone with the shepherds. She wondered what the villagers thought had happened to the girl, if they thought, perhaps, that the rider, Morvai, Ea had told her, had taken Ea with him, or if maybe he'd been back again to look for her, for Ea, or for the Gallic mongrel who had challenged him. She wondered if he had told anyone about her. She wondered if his favorite local victim and their child were even worth enough to him to come back for She wondered what his official purpose in the village actually was. She wondered where he came from. She wondered about Aya and her story, about the girl's future and her unborn child, and whether Jane and her meager knowledge would be enough to keep them both alive and healthy through the birth and the winter, and what about after? What about after? After the TARDIS came back, what then? Or was she to live out the rest of her life here, in this time, with these people, waiting forever in vain? How long should she wait? And regardless, Aya. Jane had been a parent before, been a foster parent, and she had never been able to resist giving her heart wholly and unconditionally to every child who crossed her doorstep. Aya was no different. Jane could never walk away from her now, no matter what future was available to her. So Jane stood on top her hill, and she wondered. She wondered about the future. She wondered about the past, as much as she let herself, but that... before... no, before... hurt. So she wondered about the future, instead. Or about Aya's past. "'Jane stood tall upon her rock at the top of her hill "'as the autumn wind beat her coat against her shins "'and breathed cold across her face, and she wondered. "'Time passed. "'Jane and Aya got more creative with their foraging, "'and while Aya showed Jane many edible plants and forest fruits "'that she hadn't been aware of, "'Jane likewise introduced Aya to several of her own favorites "'and taught her new ways to prepare them both as food and as medicine.' Aya's gaunt frame slowly filled out, her cheeks gained youthful color and vitality, and her beautiful dark hair turned sleek and silky. Jane altered half of her tunics to fit the girl, allowing for her ever-growing stomach. The first snow fell. Inside Gubrochlach, the women stayed warm and dry, and Jane tried very hard not to be reminded of the last blizzard she experienced. Jane spent a bit of time every day improving their little warren, First it was an extra cubby in the back of the cave for wood storage. Then she mixed a small batch of cob and modified their fire pit, enclosing it in a short chimney that focused the heat for easier cooking, with a chute-like opening that would allow it to self-feed overnight. After that it was better racks for drying meat, more cubbies to store food, clothing and blankets from hides, containers from deer stomachs, thread from sinew and gut, needles from bone— In the long evenings, when the day's work was done, Jane would sit by their stove and carve delicate little figurines out of antlers, and Aya would curl up against her side and listen as she told stories, or sang songs. Sooner or later, Jane began translating the simpler stories into Pictish, but still it was the songs that Aya loved most. Songs in English, yes, or in Scottish Gaelic, or Irish Gaelic, or Welsh, but also songs in other languages. "'German, Spanish, French, Latin. "'Ea couldn't understand a word of them, "'aside from some Gallic that she picked up from Jane, "'but the variety of languages fascinated her. "'She had no idea humans could communicate "'with so many different sounds. "'And, of course, she didn't need to understand "'in order to feel the songs. "'When Jane sang, Ea could tell which songs were about love "'and which were about longing.' which were meant to stir the blood and which were meant to calm a child. And sometimes, when Jane wasn't in the mood to carve or to sing or to tell stories, she would get out an instrument and play. She named the instruments for Aya when she produced them. The girls' favorites so far were the harmonica and the concertina, with their unique voices that could reach right into your body and pluck at your heart until you wanted to cry or tickle your skin until you wanted to dance. And so time passed. When the day came that Jane could no longer deny what was happening in her body, she climbed to the top of her hill and curled up next to her rock so Aya wouldn't see her weeping. According to her journal, it was two months to the day since she stood on this spot and watched the TARDIS vanish, which meant it was nearly four months since she found herself in a forest beside the old blue police call box. When the TARDIS woke and told her the date, her mind had done the calculations before she could stop it. Not hard. It was November 27th when the TARDIS woke. It had been October 23rd, when... Oh, Jane felt like she couldn't breathe. Four months. Was that all? It felt like years. Four months. Four months since her world fell to ashes. Four months since she ran. Four months since. Jane pressed a hand to her stomach, and then, abruptly, sobbing became retching, and she heaved until there was nothing left, then crumpled to her side in the faded meadow grass and went back to sobbing. Eventually, the tears, too, ran out, and Jane was left curled on the cold earth, alone on top her hill where the thick mist of somewhere thousands of miles and hundreds of years from where she belonged seeped its chill slowly through hair and clothes and flesh and bone and spread wetness upon her cheeks for her when she no longer could.